Now, as we look at the, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews is one of the, the most important books in the New Testament. When it comes to showing us how, or showing the believers how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament. Now, Hebrews, the main audience is the Hebrew Christians, and there are what are called the Hebrew epistles. Uh, you have Hebrew, James, and 1st, 2nd Peter, and Jude are considered the Hebrew epistles. Hebrews was written between 49 and 65 AD. Uh, here, it really recently, and, and, and I guess as far as the church age goes, um, it's a little disputed who the author of Hebrews is. I personally believe it's Paul, and I believe that Paul had what's called an amanuensis. Now, an amanuensis is someone who scribes or someone who dicta or, uh, dictates uh, what they're saying. He did the same thing with Romans. Uh, Rome, uh, Romans wasn't handwritten by Paul. It wasn't Paul's Greek. It was just Paul speaking. Uh, that's why a lot of people think maybe his eyesight, maybe that was his thorn in the flesh. He couldn't see that well. But I believe that Hebrews, its author, well, we know the author. The author is God. He's, he's the author of all the books of the Bible. So it really doesn't matter uh, who, the, who the author is. We know who the author is. But um, we believe it's Paul. There's a lot of phrases in Hebrews that are very Pauline. Pauline epistles is what they're called. And, um, but it is uh, the Greek of Hebrews, it's celebrated as one of the most elegant and polished Greek literature that there is. And so it's, it stands out to, to Greek scholars. And that's why a lot of people will say it's not Paul because it's not like Paul's writings. But uh, I don't know if you were with us in Acts when I was saying, talking about Apollos. Maybe Apollos wrote it as, as, as Paul spoke or Priscilla and Aquila wrote it as Paul spoke. Uh, but it seems like it's very Alexandrian Greek. Um, but uh, the reason that Hebrews was written, and we know that the audience was mainly Jews, was to show the Jews that Christ has superseded the Old Covenant. Not just Jesus, but he brought in the New Covenant. And the men and women that this was written to, now some believe it was written to the Jews, which were the Jewish Christians, which were in Jerusalem. Um, some, some don't, but we know that this group were being hotly persecuted. They were, I mean, they were being highly persecuted, and what was happening was the people in Jerusalem, the Jews, said, you know what, this Christianity is too hard, and they were wanting to go back into Judaism. They were wanting to go back into the law. And so this is actually a letter of, of kind of like do this or ultimatum. Sorry, I couldn't think of that word. It's almost an ultimatum where they're writing to the Christians or they're writing to the Jews in Jerusalem and saying, look, it's not law plus grace and it's not Moses plus Jesus. You have to choose one or the other. Either go back into Judaism altogether or endure in Christianity, because Christ has fulfilled, Christ has replaced the things of the law. And so this is what this book mainly is. Now, this does not 
uh, minimize the Old Testament for what it is, but what it does show us is the perfection and the finality of what Jesus did in fulfilling the Old Testament. Um, with the theme, there's a couple themes that are running through here. Uh, Thirteen times the word better is used. And that's, the word better is used more times in, in this book than any other book. And what it is is the idea also goes through it. So even though the word itself is only appears 13 times, but the, the whole idea that Jesus is better, uh, Christ is better, is the idea throughout all of it. Now, D.A. Carson made this observation, and I, I agree with him, that Jesus is it, the better, uh, he's better than the angels, he's better than Moses, he's a better sacrifice, he's a better priest, he's, he's better. He's better than all things in the Old Testament, and the superiority of what Christ has brought in eclipses the old. And so when he's talking about better, it's interesting that the word better is used, which is a comparative and not the, uh, the word best. Why didn't they just use the word best? Hebrews, all throughout Hebrews, we're going to see categorically, over and over and over, Jesus is better than this. Jesus is better than that. Jesus is better than this and this and this and this. The new covenant is better than this and better than the old covenant. And, and so we're going to see the word better so much. Well, somebody might say, well, why don't they just use the word best? Well, it doesn't have the same effect. When you use the comparative and you say it has more of an impact, it has more of a statement uh, that, that it has for better. A second theme that we see even 13 times is the words, let us. So because Christ is better, let us do this. Let us uh, persevere in faith. So the word let us is also 13 times. And it also has a sense of finality. Christ is the final. Not only is he the better, and then therefore we should do this, let us do this, let us uh, you know, get rid of the sin that so easily besets us, let us do this, let us look into Jesus, our author, the finisher of faith. Um, but it also, he also, in Hebrews, shows us the finality of what Jesus has done. And so this idea of once for all. Jesus has done this once for all. So we will see that as a theme through here. Now, the division of Hebrews, and this is another reason, uh, I believe it is Paul, but it's divided between doctrinal and practical, just like Romans is. In chapters 1 through 10, it's very doctrinal. And chapters, and chapters 10 through 13, there's only 13 chapters in Hebrews, it's, it's very practical towards faith. And in chapter 10, there's a transition verse, which we'll, we will get to here in, in a minute. I want you to hold on to your outlines. Here in a minute, we're going to go over them. Um, but just giving you the introduction to it. So it's more, the last three chapters are more the exhortation. Now, it can be further divided into chapters 1 through 7. The emphasis is on the person of Jesus Christ in Hebrews. It's on the person. Now, chapters 8 through 10, the emphasis is on the, the work of Jesus Christ. The, and then at the end, chapter 10, all the way to the end, the emphasis is, is on faith. Faith is the true response to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so this faith has built in with it an endurance. 
Okay, so if you want to get your outlines now, and let's read uh, there at the bottom, the focal passage is chapter 10. So turn with me to, to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. And it's actually right there too on your sheet. But we are going to be going through Hebrews tonight. We're going to, be go we're going to do a drive-by. We're going to do an overview. And hopefully uh, we're going to go through this whole outline tonight. And um, we, we, you, you will be flipping to various verses within, within here. So here's the, the focal point, And here's the transition. Remember I said the book's divided between the doctrinal and the practical? Here's the transition verse. This takes us from the doctrinal and then... After the, these verses are the practical. So verse 19, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promise. So you can see the charge to those who were suffering in the name of, of Christ there in Jerusalem, the Hebrews who were suffering. And you know, I started to imagine, you know, as we went through Acts, we saw Paul go through this synagogue, this synagogue, this synagogue, and it said that he had tried to persuade them from the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. And what I'm imagining now is we're getting ready to read this sermon <laughs> that he had went into the Jews to preach about the, support, the superiority of Jesus, what Jesus had done. And so we see the, the first point and the key words on, on your outline are the words better, let us, and perfect, and final. Well, first of all, we see that the Hebrews teaches us that Jesus is the new and better deliverer in chapters 1 through 7. Now, the thrust of the message to the Jews was that Christ was not a supplement to the law. Christ was not a supplement to circumcision. He's not a supplement to Moses. Not a supplement to the religion which they grew up practicing. Christ is a replacement. All of those things are now in, in Christ. Now remember, at this time there was still a temple. There was still sacrifices. There was still a priest. There were still things going on. And in Jerusalem, remember they're preaching the gospel. We see thousands being saved. But we see this tendency to go back into uh, the Jewish customs and the law and the things like that. And the early church, this was really the thrust of the message. Now, and it's sad to me that we see nowadays people slipping into Messianic Judaism when it's been this many, you know, thousand years ago. Uh, back then, the, the message was more there because they kept wanting to, to keep this law, keep this law for righteousness. And they wanted to supplement those things with Jesus. But so during Hebrews, what you're going to see is a very emphatic word to them that the old covenant is old. We have a new covenant and everything's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So 
we must see Jesus as the better in Hebrews. We must see Jesus as God and as our Savior himself with a final absolute authority in his redemptive and his uh, mediator work. And so there must be the exclusion of any Savior, any kind of works. There must be the exclusion of angels, of anything that would replace Jesus. It must be excluded because it, it is all in Jesus and that's where the focus is. Now, the very beginning, now we know chapter 1, if you look back in the Hebrews, chapter 1, really the first four verses are an introduction for the rest of the book of Hebrews. So it says, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. So immediately he is, he is comparing, right? He is comparing what is going on right now to what has happened in the past. But it hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So right away, right out of, out of the gate, the word of God is explicitly lifting up Jesus, that Jesus is the brightness, he's the radiance of God's glory in the person of Jesus Christ. And how he by himself has purged our sins. So first, uh, we see that all others point to him and there is no going beyond Jesus. Why go back to the old? Why go back to the old covenant? Why go back to the old way, the system of law and works? Why go back if everything points to him and does not go beyond him? And the old has served its purpose as God had functioned. And I like this saying, when the sun arises, the stars retire. When the sun arises, the stars, they retire. And so we see in the light of Jesus how the old covenant should retire. And so they should not hold on to those customs, hold on to the, the, those things, the works of the law. Um, Jesus as better. He's better than the angels. So back to your outline if, if you're there. That's in chapters 1 through 2. Well, he's better than the angels because he is the son, and the angels are servants. Look at verse 5. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Jesus is better than the angels because Jesus is the creator, and angels are creatures. Look at verse 10 of chapter 1. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hand. Jesus is better than the angels because he is sovereign, and the angels are subject to him. In verse 13, but to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? You, you, you may ask yourself, was this really a problem in the, the early church where they worship 
the angels or they're trying to replace Jesus with angels. There were some angel worships, but not for the most part. What this is really talking about is anything that you put in the place of Jesus as your mediator in heaven or on earth that's not Jesus, Jesus is better. Jesus is final. He's the only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So if, I mean, throughout the ages, you see people do this. You see people worshiping angels or idols or, um, you know, uh, some people say, well, you know, I'm going to die and get my wings and become an angel. Well, Jesus, you know what, we're going to get bodies fashioned like unto Jesus' body. And Jesus is better than the angels. He's superior than the angels. And I want a body like his. The angels are not going to be, you know, I don't want to be an angel. <laughs> because these are created beings and they are not better. So in chapter 3, so we see chapter 1, he's better than the angels. Or any type of, of thing on earth that you put authority with to, to mediate between you and God. He's also better than Moses in chapter 3. Moses was the human agent of the, human, of the old economy. Christ is the founder of the new covenant. Look at verse 3 of chapter 3. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, insomuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. Jesus is the very founder and creator of the new covenant. Moses was a faithful steward of God's house, but Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. Look at verse 5. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope from the end. You know what? I meant to ask you all, you may want to take your pen and kind of write down the verses that I'm, I'm having you go to uh, for this outline. Uh, I meant to bring a bunch of pens. Hopefully there's enough pens out there. So we see that Jesus is better than Moses in chapter 3. And Jesus is also better than Joshua in chapter 4. Now in chapter 4, he does not bring out Joshua's name, but he does bring in the journey into Canaan. And so Joshua led the people into the earthly Canaan, as we know, but could not lead them to a true or better rest, uh, where Jesus does bring us into a true rest from ceasing from works. Look at verse 10 of chapter 4. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Let me tell you, I, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to go over Hebrews. There's so many things I wanted to, to bring out right now and as we've been going, but I know we don't have enough time to do that. So uh, there's a chapter four is very rich and uh, all of it's very rich, but let's just let you know I'm excited. Now, better than Aaron. So we see now better than Joshua, meaning that, that Jesus is the better rest. God, that Jesus has finished his work and in Christ so have we. And so he's the better rest than Joshua. 
Now, he's better than Aaron. Now, this takes chapter 4 all the way to chapter 7. There's three chapters. And how is Jesus the better priest than Aaron? Well, look at chapter 4, verse 14. He says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. So there's uh, various ways Jesus is the better high priest. First of all, Jesus ministers in a better sanctuary than Aaron. Uh, we have heavenly versus earthly. And that's what we just read. Verse 14, that Jesus has passed into the heavens where he's our high priest. And he, uh, so he says here in verse 4, let us hold fast our profession. And Jesus also maintains a better priesthood than Aaron. You have Melchizedek versus Aaron. Look at chapter 7 with me, verse 11. And this, this is really good and can't wait to get into this and explore this uh, more as, as we go through Hebrews. But chapter 7, verse 11 says, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. So the argument in verse 11, now imagine this is, they are, they are presenting this to the Jews who are there in their, they believe Christ, but, but they're still wanting to adopt or adapt the things to, of the law into it. They're wanting to synergize the things of the law into it in the priest and the, the temple. Well, the, the argument in verse 11 is if there was perfection in the Levitical priesthood, the priest after the order of Aaron, then why would there need to be a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek? And so there wouldn't. And that's what he says, uh, that's what he means in verse 11. The earthly priest, after the order of Aaron, who were descendants of Abraham. Also, I love this, and I don't know if I'm going to have enough time to, to go into it. Uh, chapter 7, verse 4, just real quick. Now consider how great this man was. He's talking about Mel Melchizedek. Unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the, of the spoils. And verily they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they came out of the loins of Abraham. So in the Levitical priesthood, the, the, the Levite priest, or Aaron, received tithes. But who is their father, the Levitical priest? Abraham. What did Abraham do? Abraham didn't receive tithes. He gave tithes to who? Melchizedek. So consider how great this man was, Melchizedek. And so that Jesus is the better, has a better priesthood. over. In the, Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of Aaron. And I'd, I'd love to read all the verses and show you where it says that, but we need to move on. Jesus has a better qualification of the priesthood than Aaron does because Jesus is sinless. He never dies, and he's perfect. Versus the order of Aaron, 
These priests were not sinless. Aaron's was not sinless, and they did die. And they were not perfect. In verse, uh, chapter 7, look at verse 23. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered or allowed to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Jesus also offers a better offering. And so it is himself versus animals. It's once and for all versus being incomplete sacrifice. The priests after the order of Aaron gave not a once for all sacrifice, but they had to do it every year. Verse 27 of chapter 7 says, Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. And that's the once for all. Once and for all, Jesus offered up himself. He's the better sacrifice than of bulls and goats that we see in the priesthood. Now, notice the order which we went through. We went through angels, we went through Moses, Joshua, and Aaron, but all lead to the contrast of Jesus Christ and Aaron. They all lead to that. They're building up to Christ being the better priest, having the better sanctuary, having the better sacrifice. His sanctuary is heavenly, not earthly. His sacrifice is eternal, not temporary. And so we see that Jesus is the better of the system of law and the system of Moses. So now we go on to the new and better covenant in your outline. The new covenant has better promises. And look at chapter 8, look at verse 6. But now hath he ordained a more excellent ministry, but how much also he is the mediator of a, new, of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. So here he is exposing, God's exposing that there was a need for a new covenant because the old one had fault. So the new covenant has better promises. The new covenant also has a better sanctuary in chapter 9, verses, as you see on your outline, verses 1 through 14. But there's a series, we're going to look at it, of ten different contrasts. Now here's the sanctuary. The sanctuary is uh, earthly versus heavenly. Look at chapter 9, verse 11. But Christ being, made, uh, being come on, I'm sorry, but Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. So the New Covenant has a better sanctuary and that it's a heavenly sanctuary. Then we have the fleshly versus spiritual. It's better because it's spiritual, not fleshly. Look at verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So this sanctuary is not only heavenly and spiritual, 
But this sanctuary is also, the new covenant has a sanctuary that's eternal. In verse 9 of chapter 9, which was a figure for the time present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the, the service perfect as pertaining to the conscious. Now again, the, the sanctuary which he is referring to in verse 9 of it not being perfect, he's talking about the earthly sanctuary, the temporary sanctuary, the, the temple. It's not long from now that the temple is destroyed. The temple was temporary but that's what he is his, his argument here is the figure of the temple on earth was just a figure of what is already exists eternally in heaven now you see that in revelation too you see that the things there are things in heaven that are after well the things on earth were after the design of what's all, already in heaven you have the altar in heaven you have the things and all of the things that were on earth were after the the specifications of the things which are in heaven but the things on earth are temporary but heavenly spiritual is eternal and that's the new covenant the new covenant does not uh, focus on the physical it focuses on the eternal and that's how the new covenant is better and also in the sanctuary as far as the sanctuary goes in the sanctuary physically you had animals but heavenly you have the son of god you have jesus look at verse 12 neither by the blood of goats and calves but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us now that is that holy place do you see that in verse 12 where is Jesus entered into? The holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now, a lot of people believe that it's a physical place in heaven. Some people don't believe it's a physical place. I mean, I, I don't, I know that Jesus is my altar. He's, he's the Ark of the Covenant. He's the mercy seat. He's all those things. Uh, some people will go a little bit further and say, well, those things actually do exist in heaven. I'm not going to say they don't. I'm not going to say that they are. But I know that in heaven, that is the better. Yes. Not here. So here's the argument to the Jews is this is all temporary. The, what, what the Sol or Solomon's temple, Herod's temple, uh, you know, everything you see, all the designs which God specified, they're a type, they're a figure of the things that are eternal not temporary. The new covenant is also sealed and ratified by a better sacrifice. Now, a covenant has to be ratified. Uh, a covenant that is ratified, like if you have a will that you make, what typically ratifies that will? Your death. That, it becomes permanent. Upon your death, you can't change your will. That, that no one can change your will. Uh, so your death ratifies, it seals the covenant. Well, the new covenant is sealed with a better sacrifice than that of the old. So in the patterns of the old, so look at verse, verse 22 of chapter 9. And he says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, 
but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. I mean, he's, he's really getting it, he's really pouring it on, isn't he, to the Jews. And like, again, we, we didn't really get a, a see what the sermons were where Paul was saying that he persuaded him from the scriptures that this is the Messiah. And I can just imagine this, this is the sermon. Jesus is better. Sanctuary is better. The new covenant is better. And the, the patterns which we see are after the things which are of Christ. So, and we also see the new covenant is sealed with a better sacrifice because the sacrifices of the old had an incomplete repetitious sacrifice. But Jesus has once for all, in verse 26 of chapter 9, but now once, and when you see that word once, it's once for all, in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now we move on to the next one. The new covenant achieves far better results. And this starts with the chapter 10 and it is getting us to our transition verse. But the new covenant has a fulfillment of promise. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these sacrifices which were, they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. So we have the promise of the old covenant. It all points to Christ. All of the things, all in the Old, old Testament, point to Jesus. And they find their fulfillment in Jesus, in the Messiah. And so we see that the new covenant has better results because it's fulfilled. The old covenant has promises. The new covenant has fulfillment. And so it's better. Uh, the, we also see the inability of the old to remove sins. Versus the new is true sanctification. Look at verse 4 of chapter 10. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. We know that it's the precious blood of Jesus Christ that does that. Now there was also a year by year remembrance. And now there is no more that God year by year had a remembrance of the sins. And a year by year they had to come and they had a sacrifice. That's what is repetitious and never ending. Look at verse 3. But if those sacrifices, um, but in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year and their sins and iniquities. I'm sorry, verse 17. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. So it's never finished sacrifices versus one sacrifice by Jesus, our high priest, who has once and for all, and he has sat down at the right hand of God. Look at verse 11 of chapter 10. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. You know, uh, he's got me convinced he's better so far. <laughs> Doesn't he have you convinced? So by now, this is not only Paul's... Now, I also want to say that. Sometimes I'll say Paul. Sometimes I'll say the writer. Okay? Even though I do believe it's Paul who wrote it. I'll, I'll 
We use those two terms interchangeably. But at this point, he's coming to a climax. And it's reaching a critical point. And this critical point is to the Hebrew believers, they have the whole case set before them of who Jesus is and how he's better than the law. He's, he's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than Aaron. He's the better sanctuary. He has the better sacrifices. There's the better covenant. All things are better. He is the better priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. And now it's come to the critical point where they must choose. You cannot have it both. You cannot have law plus grace. You cannot have Moses plus Christ. It's all, and that's what I said, it's an ultimatum letter. Choose you this day. Choose. Jesus is better. And because, and that's what takes us actually into the practical. It's a very beautiful transition into the practical because that last part is faith. Remember the last three chapters are of faith. Now we've hit our transition verse, which we read earlier. The verses 19 through 22 is a transition verse. But now, how do we respond to these better things? Look at chapter 10, verse 19. Faith responds to better things. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter, oh, we already read that, into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Come in confidence that it's all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There's nothing left. There's nothing lacking that he did not complete. Have faith to come to him. Now, I don't have time uh, to really go into it, and we will when we hit chapter 10. But that verse, that really hard first there, verse 26, for if we sin willfully, I, actually I, I, I want to bring up just for a little bit, for if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall, uh, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherein he, sorry, wherewith he was sanctified and holy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. So what is this saying? If, if you choose to go back to the law, you're trodden even after actually receiving this light of acknowledgement, of the truth, and you decide to put those things back on, and you, and you do not see the sufficiency, the all-sufficiency in the blood of Jesus Christ, uh, that says a lot about your faith. I don't believe there's faith there. And that's what he's saying. It's, and here pretty soon he says it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened to fall back. And we're not going to go into that tonight. Not enough time. But do you see the ultimatum in there? If you go back, you're going back and, you're, and you just think about God's wrath on you. Those who rejected Moses, what happened to them? They were stoned outside the camp. Those who reject Jesus Christ, 
and his precious blood being so much more better, being the brightness of God's very own glory and his express image, guess what's going to happen to you? It's going to be a lot worse. And so that's what that is talking about. So uh, faith in chapter 11 is vindicated and it's proven by all the examples, the hall of faith. How could anyone draw back? How, how could anyone uh, receive Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and go back into the law? Well, they didn't understand that faith had been honored and imputed in the past. And that's the whole chapter 11. Look, they, it was counted unto them for righteousness. That's what it says about Noah. Look at uh, verse 7 of chapter 11. By faith Noah, being warned of God, of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he con condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. Righteousness, which is by faith. And over and over, they demonstrate in chapter 11, the promises of God have always been by faith. The salvation of God has always been by grace, through faith. It's always been that way. Now, faith endures, and that's here in chapter 12. That's the letter C in your outline of faith. What does faith do? It moves forward. Faith doesn't look back at the old things. It moves forward looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. In chapter 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now here's where all our let us's come in. There's a, there's a whole lot of let us's. And this is where the practical starts taking over. Because of what we just said, the Holy Spirit enabling us and Knowing our boldness to come to God and the access to his throne, which we have, which back then in temporary and on earth, they had a big veil that separated the common people from the presence of God. But now Jesus has done away with that veil. He has become the go-between. Jesus has to be a person's mediator to, to go to God with anything. All of God's Sovereignty, all his grace, all his love, all his mercy is only through Jesus Christ because Jesus is the veil. He's our access into the Holy of Holies. We go through Christ, who was our high priest. So the exalted privilege of having boldness and access to God is connected 13 times with the let us. In verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, Let us lay aside every weight. Um, yeah therefore seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witness let us let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us remember who he's talking to again the, those who are being persecuted they're coming hard onto believers and they have the temptation to escape back into Judaism. Faith endures in patience, looking unto Jesus. 
Look at verse 28. Let us have grace. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. In chapter 13, it's, he says in verse 13, chapter 13, verse 13, let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing the, his reproach. For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. You remember in verse 15? Look at that. By him, therefore, let us. Knowing what we know about Jesus being the better and him being the only high priest, the, 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 the author of the new covenant, let us do these things in faith. Nothing wavering. In all confidence. Even if, even if it does mean persecution. Let us move forward. Now, this letter was an ultimatum, ultimatum to look unto Jesus by faith alone, without works. Have faith in Christ alone. Because he is the new and the better way. I really look forward to continuing... Uh, next week, as we look at chapter 1, I pray the Lord's richly blessed you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this time of study as we just did an overview of Hebrews. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for teaching us through your holy word of your Son. And Father, how, how Him by Himself has purged our sins. Father, we, we do pray that it will just be meat to us and nourishment to us and Father, we ask to forgive us of our sins and, and may you just establish your word strongly in our heart. May we understand and may we see the superiority of Jesus through all the old covenant, all the things that were types and, and things that pointed to your son. How through all of history, it has always been about Jesus. We thank you, Father, for saving us by your grace. Lord, I pray that you be with each one here tonight as we go our separate ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand, please, and we'll just have one.